This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. The difference between risk management and resilience. Resilience and investments in resilience accrue. Three additional feet of levees in New Orleans is three additional feet of resilience to Hurricane Katrina. The key right now, as we saw with COVID-19, the U.S. mobilized the largest non-war capital mobilization as a society, $6 trillion and counting. If more of this type of capital being deployed, whether it's from the private sector or the public sector, is targeted towards resilience, every one of those dollars will accrue over time. Responding to these events without a plan and buying home insurance when your house is on fire is the most costly intervention we have as a society. And so the optimistic point is I think these are increasingly predictable events that we can invest in and targeting investments in resilience has long range value and it accrues. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. As our economy increasingly goes digital, so too do the kinds of risks that businesses and individuals face in their engagement with that economy. The ever-growing spate of ransomware attacks is perhaps the clearest example of this. Schools, hospitals, banks, NGOs, energy providers, a swath of vital services has been disrupted by this nefarious activity, where hackers lock up or threaten to disclose the attack organization's vital files or they block key operational software and demand that it pay a ransom to make the problem go away. And more often than not, the victims have little option but to do so. These attacks have fostered a negative view of Bitcoin in some quarters, since it's the cryptocurrency of choice for many attackers. But far more important is the issue of why these attacks are happening in the first place. It's not Bitcoin that's inspired this. It's the woeful state of cybersecurity generally in the global economy. Our topic today is to consider how a new approach to risk management generally might address such concerns. A recent report by Cybersecurity Ventures predicted that costs for victims of ransomware could run to $265 billion by 2031. But here they're talking only about the payouts. The total cost of the global economy is many times larger. It includes the ever-growing outlays to build ever more complex cybersecurity solutions. If you roll in all the other kinds of attacks and the costs of protecting against them, the numbers get astronomical. The same firm says that total cybercrime costs are on track to run to $6 trillion this year, a number that its editor-in-chief Steve Morgan points out would make cybercrime the third largest economy in the world if it were a country. This week, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan said his bank spends more than a billion dollars a year on such services. Think about it. If the most lucrative industry in the internet age is cybercrime and cybersecurity, we've done something horribly wrong. Before we explore an alternative approach, let's think about how things currently work. We're in the middle of a cat and mouse game between attackers and security teams. The bad guys try to get over the top of company firewalls, 
and become increasingly sophisticated with their methods and software for doing so, which means the security managers must keep spending on upgrades to their firewall to make them ever higher, if you will. This endless race is going on for one big reason. Companies are accumulating massive amounts of sensitive, important data at an exponential rate. They are creating centralized honeypots of valuable information, and that's a giant temptation for hackers. We need a new paradigm, not just for security, but for how we price, insure, and manage risks in the digital age. In today's episode, we'll talk about how decentralizing data and other features of the economy might change the economics of cybercrime, making attacks far less worth the effort because the payoff is smaller. Imagine if our transport system were based on electric vehicles that get their power from a grid based on multiple solar microgrids rather than on gasoline piped along a single centrally controlled pipeline. Yes, the colonial pipeline attack was a case study in the risks of centralization. Or what if we move to open source software models in which developers are incentivized through bug bounties to constantly improve security systems? Might that not be a more effective way to spend on security rather than on firewalls and insurance? To talk about this, we are joined by two people who really know how to think outside the box. First up, Dante Disparate, perhaps best known in crypto circles for his former role as vice chairman of the DM Association, formerly Libra, and now as chief strategy officer and head of global policy at Circle. Dante is also chairman and founder of the Risk Cooperative, which has taken a radical new approach to insurance and risk management. He's joined by Pindar Wong, chairman of Hong Kong-based Verify, an infrastructure consulting firm, and an important player in blockchain technology development in Asia. Pindar is an internet pioneer. Among other roles, he was the first vice chair of ICANN. Before we talk to them, let's say hello to Sheila Warren, my co-host. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. These numbers just Staggering. blow my mind. It's incredible. I mean, if you think about it, what's the best use case that we could think of that's come out of the internet age? What have, what have we created? <laughs> well, here we are. Most lucrative business around cybercrime, you know, something is not right. So much attention is given to these successful ransomware attacks. But when you think about the amount for everyone, how many are not successful and why is that the case? Well, it's because of this tremendous outlay of resources, both financial, technical and human, to make sure that we don't have more of these media grabbing, you know, attention getting headlines. And certainly when you think about the fact that our very infrastructure, our grid, you know, our defense systems, all of these things operate in a centralized fashion, it becomes really scary to contemplate. And it's hard not to justify those expenses because the consequences of failure are just so profound and horrifying to think about. Absolutely. The downside is so large that there's a huge incentive to just try to prevent it. But on the other hand, to me, it's just this constant race. It's, it's sort of yeah. everything is just driving higher and higher. This idea of the wall getting bigger, the honeypot getting bigger, and these sort of big pools of risk just growing and growing. We really need a different way to think about risk generally, which is why I'm going to turn now to Dante. Something that I think struck me when I first met you was the way that you sort of talked about conceiving of risk differently. Maybe talk a little bit about the principles behind which the risk cooperative was created and how that feeds into the conversation that we're having here. You know, as it happens, I don't have the book on my desk for anything other than it wasn't supposed to be a prop today, but it's super relevant to the way you described the opening of the conversation, Michael and Sheila, which is 
We're facing a risk environment that is increasingly defined by risks that have agency. So against cyber threats, the actor that you're competing against has to be right once in order to get you into so havoc on your business. And you have to be right as the defender or the mitigant 100% of the time. And so, you know, the word of caution generally to the world, you know, in a world where crypto is being blamed for climate change, cyber risk, child trafficking, illicit finance, is the message is very simple. When it comes to risk management, correlation does not equal causality. Cyber threats payable in Bitcoin say more about the inherent cyber vulnerability of the entity that was attacked more so than it does about the means of payment or thrift of the ransom. And so Colonial Gas Pipeline, the food processing plant, Twitter not long ago, the solar winds attack of the US federal government, all of these are very predictable events. I certainly called out cyber risk as one of the major threats in this book back from 2016. Have a piece in the National Defense University calling for a cyber FDIC-like structure in the United States, so the federal deposit insurance structure, to federalize risk sharing. One example, the point you mentioned that Bank of America spends a billion dollars on cyber resilience, and yet the irony is that the failure of any one bank erodes confidence in banking. Can all of the banks in America pay a billion dollars to keep pace? So it's a bit of a race to the bottom. If money spent equals a proxy for cyber resilience, then we're really in trouble. And the irony here too, the, the other point I would make, and then and I'll pause, is actually fundamentally, in order to make our world more resilient to anthropogenic risks, man-made risks, risks that have agency, we actually need to leverage not only blockchain as a foundational technology, but blockchain-based thinking, which is about compartmentalization. That if one event is exposed or one data point is exposed in a blockchain, it's not catastrophic. This is a notion of anti-fragility, that something that would benefit from a shock is anti-fragile like the airline industry. No single loss of a plane is catastrophic to aviation. In fact, it improves the advent of risk management and resilience in aviation. I think blockchain inherently imports these ideas, and we, we need to borrow from those design principles for national security, for resilience, and cyber resilience. Well, I knew there was a reason why I brought you and Pindar together, because I think Pindar was the first person who said to me that we needed to develop blockchain thinking. And is also somebody who thinks relentlessly about system design. Just pick up on that, if you don't mind, Pindar, because I'm sure you've got lots of thoughts. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Dante, for your comments and, and Sheila, for your opening remarks. Yeah, blockchain thinking. What do I mean by that? In this context, I think the perimeter is dead. I mean, I heard the word firewall mentioned several times, right? If we build the high, firewall high enough, we build the moat wide enough, then we are so-called secure. I think there is a question mark over the internet. In other words, beforehand, we used to connect to the internet because the connectivity was its own reward. But now there's a cost, right? These uh, cybersecurity costs, which interestingly enough, each time an exchange is hacked, we know the next day exactly how much money was lost. So what's interesting now is that we can actually measure the risk. Beforehand, it's, oh, I'm so sorry you've been hacked. You've lost several hundred million people's data. I'm so sorry. Happens to everybody. To now, here's how much money you've lost. So once we can measure this, and once we can really challenge the assumptions of what blockchain thinking means, which in my case, it means the perimeter is dead, it doesn't matter because we're all peers and the state that we have is preserved by the network. So even though I'm hacked, my node goes down, I can then reconnect. And that kind of resilience, as exemplified by the Bitcoin protocol, 
is a wonderful experiment, like the internet was an experiment, but these are experiments still. The assumption has been, well, let's move all of our infrastructure, our grid, our commerce, all of it online to the same network. And I think people these days, because of the cybersecurity costs, are rethinking that value proposition. It's no longer, yes, I must connect to the internet. It's yes, but, you know, what's the cost involved? And that, that's a cause for pause. The inherent problem, though, with the systemic design is this notion of identity. Because, again, given the genesis beforehand of an academic network where we did, you know, the security was not the first priority because you had to have physical access to the university network to gain access, now this role of identity is paramount. If only for law enforcement, the law goes after the nearest person. But on the internet, the whole point was geography doesn't matter. The old world was, you know, you can't divorce your neighbor. United States is connected to Canada, which is connected to Mexico. But now with the internet, geography is irrelevant and everyone's your neighbor. The downside is that everywhere is potentially a bad neighborhood. So there's two changes, I think, with blockchain thinking. One, the notion of using cryptography, both as an identifier and in the protocols themselves. And number two is getting rid of this perimeter thinking. And the classic example I want to use is we used to build castles with six feet thick walls. And that worked as a security architecture until the invention of gunpowder. When you had the invention of gunpowder and you have a cannon that just blows through, there are examples in Europe where you know, a castle that stood sieged, but it's a security intact for several hundred years, the invention of gunpowder and they blew through it, the walls in a few hours. When you're inside that castle then, with this new technical change, that becomes a disadvantage than an advantage. So as Dante mentioned, the hacker only has to be right once. And so this perimeter thinking in the protocols and where the state is held makes it a new challenge because blockchain means that the state or the integrity of the system could be outside the system itself. So I could have an insecure system, but I could rely on the blockchain to reestablish my memory of where I was when my integrity is you know, back to healthiness, right, so to speak. And so this ability to, in some sense, build a functioning system when you have insecure components is a really interesting thing for blockchain as applied to the Internet of Things or the Internet of Threats as it's currently on that trajectory. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to pumapay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit PumaPay.io today. That's PumaPay.io. I love this concept of blockchain thinking as a general matter. I'm curious to have you both weigh in on how governance plays into the frame here, because one of the innovations that isn't necessarily talked about as often that we all know is, is critically important to decentralized systems is, of course, the underlying governance models and the variation there that all kind of centers around this fundamental concept that distributed systems are more secure than centralized systems, right? So maybe comment a bit on that and how you see the role of governance in engendering this blockchain thinking and also the opportunities it provides in the context of risk. First of all, you know, thank you for having me on because it just, just being here, I'm getting a little smarter by osmosis. 
But governance is the breakthrough, right? When all other things fail and when the technology fails, and I like the fact that Pindar pointed out that so much of this, frankly, remains experimental. When all other things fail, governance is the difference maker and governance not only embodied by common interest represented, again, in blockchain thinking, it's this notion of pari passu, we're all on the same footing, where you have this powerful concept of collective witness inherent in blockchains that from a governance point of view really is an organizational breakthrough. But there is also this sort of maybe philosophical argument that the technology standards and its clash with traditional organizational leadership models is the real problem set. For example, Pindar mentions digital identity as one example. My, my next piece is on digital identity and the trust problem we have in financial services. That's a revisitation of the post-9-11 global financial crimes compliance framework. Post-9-11, the burden of truth and the burden of proof and trust is on you, the individual, wanting to get access to the financial system. You need to prove who you are. And as a result, you submit all of this PII, effectively the thing that goes into a single source of failure honeypot database like Equifax, and that then becomes the vector of attack. Blockchain-based thinking, not just the technology, but the thinking, would then imply that imagine a world in which the financial system turned the pyramid of trust upside down and said everyone was trusted and we will maximize the penalty on the bad actor. Ironically, and this is sort of an area where we could exonerate Bitcoin and we could exonerate public blockchains as a transaction ledgering system, is that where else in modern finance can we track, trace, and soon potentially retrieve illicit money flows in near real time? You cannot do that with opaque competitive banks and offshore banking that is like a patchwork quilt of varying degrees of risk management, varying degrees of transparency, and enormous complexity when it comes to agency. The technology is showing us where incumbents have failed and where policy has failed, but it's that giving up of organizational power and traditional hierarchy that is what is required at the end of the day. Just building on the question of, of governance, uh, unfortunately, I'm a little bit allergic to that word <laughs> because you know, we've been trying to govern the internet for the last you know, 20 odd years without much degree of success, primarily because you know, we are looking at protocols which are very technical in nature. And because we are coming at this from a geographic mindset, on this borderless network, you know, unfortunately, laws have borders. We like law and order, but laws have borders, as we found out. And so we have a, a clash of these two worldviews, one where the network is borderless, and that's the whole point, is that we can all be our neighbor, and, we, and geography is meaningless, or less the cost of geography is, is not there. And yet we're coming at this from a sort of a, the sun revolves around the earth view, right? One view of nation state actors. The conflict here is not just what I call stewardship. I'm more interested in the word stewardship because I think the connectivity of the resource of the network should not be taken for granted. I think we all have our role in maintaining our little portion of the internet, which comprises almost 80,000 different separate networks. Just to give you an idea of scale, it's not Facebook, it's not Twitter, it's about 80,000 separately administered networks. We need to start to think really hard about what Michael was mentioning before, about the system architecture, the system design. Who is sort of the steward of that? And so I like to talk about sort of a multipolar approach. In other words, there are many centers. You can call it decentralized in a way. They can be layered in, in terms of different administrative groups like ICANN was mentioned earlier, or the Internet Engineering Task Force for, the, for the, some of the internet protocols. And if we all do our respective roles, then hopefully 
again, this notion of security or cybersecurity is improved. My challenge, though, is that I've been very critical of the whole notion of the security language. You know, the CIA triad, as, as it's typically called, primarily because I think the healthcare model is, in fact, a better model. We all have different standards, so to speak, of what is healthy, what it is to be healthy. And we are all investing, I hope, uh, in either preventing to get sick. And if we do get sick, to bounce back. I mean, COVID-19 is a great example of different approaches to even healthcare. And I think the language around healthcare is more productive, primarily because we don't have to have this binary thinking of I'm secure or I'm insecure. There are steps that we can take each individually to improve in our own self-interest. And the interesting thing, if we will do that, is that everyone's collective health improves, right? So this is like the vaccine argument. Again, I think the challenge here is not just in terms of governance or stewardship. I think more important thing, because it is so much of an experiment, is to be really sharp on our thinking of how do we frame the discussion so that we can move forward in a productive way. The binary language of secure, insecure is, in my opinion, not really that healthy. Let's take the issue of our age. I know both of you have given an enormous amount of thought to it, COVID-19. Because you just there, you know, talked about this idea of the collective health there, Pindar. And I think one of the things that was so striking for me in some of the many failures that we've seen all around the world, every, nobody got this right, was almost an inability of people to think about systems. That we sort of built almost a society that is sort of entirely raising to some higher level the role of the individual, whether it's an individual person or an individual entity or, or an individual government. And not thinking about how, in fact, connectivity, connections, and literally virality is built upon all these other factors that you simply cannot control from a central decision-making perspective, that there has to be coordination. Again, blockchain thinking lens, can we apply this to how we might now approach what inevitably will be the next pandemic? People are saying that precisely because of climate change and sort of environmental degradation, we are all the more vulnerable to yet another pandemic, and it may even be more deadly than this one at some point. So what have we learned, and can we apply this thinking to how to address it if and when it comes? Right. I think it will come because I think obviously you know, diseases evolve and you know, the internet is an evolving network. The question is, where's the stability within all this change? And so blockchain, I think, provides that provenance. It provides this sort of collective agreed consensus state which we can then reboot in some sense. And that was what I was trying to, to do in, in, with the IEEE in 2016, is to say, hey, look, we've got a new way of thinking about how we build these systems, not to prevent, but to bounce back. So it's like to say that sort of the argument is, I will never get sick. That's kind of like, oh, we must be secure, as opposed to, I know I'm going to get sick. I'm going to try and mitigate getting sick. But the real focus then is, how do I bounce back fast enough? And so the blockchain aspect is interesting because it could be that we can bounce back fast enough to an agreed state and agreed with everyone else using this, this, this blockchain thinking. And so I, I sort of, I was put in the dog box because, uh, you know, the DNS is, again, a distributed database global. It's critical infrastructure. And, you know, almost half a decade ago, I said, well, what could be the relationship to reboot the internet? How do you reboot the internet? How do you reboot the DNS? if it becomes corrupt in a different way. 
And given that we're moving society online, we really need to think not so much about preventing everything that could possibly be bad because we don't know what those are, right? The whole, the whole network is evolving. Is to focus really the thinking on how quickly can we bounce back and what are the costs involved? If it's the case that I can bounce back and the cost to me is zero or as low as possible, then I don't really care about being disrupted because I just bounce back. And the best example of that I was involved with uh, uh, tangentially was, you know, we had the, the Y2K bug, the year 2000. Mm, and then well. uh, the Clinton administration had Koshlin think about this sort of internet Y2K, which is how is this internet, this resilient thing, you know, how is it going to survive the Y2K thing? And so what I learned from that is, again, you've got these very complex systems that adapt. And thinking about prevention rather than cure, you know, it's lovely to think about, I would never get sick, that I would need to prevent this. But then I think we need to spend perhaps even more time right now on thinking how do we sort of bounce back, how do we get back? The difference here is that we can move outside the dogma because what we've also learned is centralized systems, if the decision is made and can be very quickly deployed. So there's an efficiency argument for centralized systems. But then decentralized systems are robust, right? They're not uh, as maybe efficient, but they are more resilient. And so, as you know, I'm a fan of this notion of within sort of the, the money argument that we have a monoculture in money, right? The fiat system. And when we had the last global financial crisis in 2008, people like Bernard Letier came up with all these different notions and research that biological systems are the systems that we need to model on. And what's interesting there is that if you look at biological systems, which have evolved over billions of years, they are a mixture of efficiency and robustness, the ability to bounce back. But it's not equal. It's actually slightly shifted. So the key word for the homework exercise is to look up the word window of viability. And the short answer is that we may need six to seven different kinds of money if our financial systems are to be resilient. Right now, we have maybe two. We have the example of fiat currencies. And now, you know, El Salvador is mixing things up with also looking at sort of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Are two enough or do we need five more kinds of money? The whole point is biological systems have evolved. They are robust. But this mixture of efficiency and robustness, again, the work of Bernard Leotard is key to that, is something that I think we should all learn from. I was just going to say very, very briefly, looking at 2020 and looking, frankly, at the last three years of risk, not only as an entrepreneur in this space, but I serve on FEMA's National Advisory Council. And when you think about all of the things that broke first, you then have your blueprint for post-pandemic recovery. And if, to blockchain thinking, to kind of herald blockchain again, at scale, we had a work from home experiment of planetary scale. And if you lost the zip code or postal code lottery or birth code lottery, you were literally on the margins of everything that resembled business continuity or household continuity. And then even fortress nations like our own struggled with basics. How do we mobilize payments, government to citizen payments at scale without losing up to $400 billion, which is currently the number being reported externally on the inability to have real-time payments that could be executed with accounting fidelity. And then there's so many other areas of that spectrum, including this concept of vaccine passporting and doing so in an identity-preserving and privacy-preserving way that could be trusted not only in one country, we could barely do it domestically state to state, but let alone across international borders. So 
everything to do with post-pandemic recovery really harkens to exactly the conversation we're having here today. A, a technology alone is not a panacea. You need public policy technology and, and public and private actors to come together on it. But the void of trusted, scaled technologies is the gap that we have to solve for. So one of the ways that we've tried as a society to create these more resilient systems that can bounce back is the advent, of course, of insurance. And that was kind of a financial way of at least in that context, providing a buffer or a bolster or a, a supercharging, you know, a certain kinds of recovery. Now, certain kinds of recovery, I think, is the key. And certainly our insurance system is, has its own biases built into it and its own challenges. I wonder if uh, one or both of you could talk about the insurance system, how you maybe see blockchain thinking or the technology itself. You know, DeFi has a lot of insurance opportunities coming up in that context. Do you see that playing a significant role going forward, whether in post-pandemic or other kinds of disasters? Maybe Dante to you first. Sure. Well, it's the area, obviously, that I've spent the most time in my career in, having started a company in the space. And I ran a global insurance firm with people insured and businesses insured all over the world. And the irony is that in many ways, if there ever were a space in the global financial system looking for a blockchain solution, insurance is it. It's a $5.5 trillion industry. What you get is the technical term is an aleatory contract. It's a contract in which you pay less into it than you would ever claim if you ever claimed against the contract. Kind of like money in some cases, it's not worth more than the paper it is printed on. And so it's as good as the promise of, of the insurance company that's backing you. But the challenge the insurance industry has today is that on the one hand, you have a risk environment that's run amok, roiled by climate change, cyber risk, political risk, socio-political upheavals, and everything in between. And you have very few places for insurers to carry out the activity known as asset liability management, meaning where do I find yield in an environment of anemic global interest rates, right? And then in the middle, the expense ratio, meaning for every dollar of risk capital that comes in as premium, the expense ratio in the insurance industry is high, prohibitively high. Depending on the class of insurance, it might be upwards of 80 or 90%. And so that small sum of liquidity that is left is what you and I as consumers and frankly, the economy writ large can tap as the ability to pay out claims. And so here's the sad irony, the tragic comedy of where we are, is that as the waters are rising and the fires are raging, the insurance balance sheet is in retreat, which is why so much of what is an otherwise potentially insurable event produces a global protection gap. We face it in the United States, things like flood insurance, it's an upside down actuarial model, earthquake insurance, weather, wind, fire, you name it, all of these big weather events and other related events are technically insurable, but it's the lack of digital transformation in the insurance industry itself that makes it financially unviable. So here too, blockchain to the rescue, you have opportunities with things like parametric insurance, use only in a very, very small tranche of insurance known as uh, catastrophe bonds that can be reduced down to the household level where you have geo-referencing that tells you your particular property is underwater, that should be a total loss claim, payable in a manner that provides for liquidity to the end user and sort of a viable business model for the insurers themselves. So enormous opportunity in the insurance balance sheet. And frankly, one of the bigger societal issues we have to address is who pays for these risks and who pays for the moral hazard of continuing to build on floodplains with unchanged housing codes when that incentive is ultimately passed on to society writ large. So there's a lot to do in addressing this kind of protection gap at scale, not only in the United States, but around the world. Just sort of building off that, the, the role of insurance, if you look back historically at sort of 
the, the current revolution we're in, but the previous one, the industrial revolution, when we had notions of fire and property insurance were, I think, invented during that period, uh, if only because, you know, if business people needed were attracted to uh, other sources of energy, it turns out, with this new form of power, they needed to move to a new city. There's all sorts of risks. What happens if the factory burnt down and all my stock is there? Uh, they could be made whole through this notion of fire and property insurance. This, to me, is, is very important, if only because if you look at today, in order to get fire and property insurance, you, know, you have to have a sprinkler system, for example, in your building. This could be related to if you have data or cyber insurance, so to speak. You must conform to these minimal set of best practices, put in the equivalent of the sprinkler system. But more importantly, though, blockchains provide a clear evidence of data insurance, right? The whole notion that I can lose my own whole data store, but then connect back to a blockchain network and go back into the current state from some known state is, I think, self-evident. So this blockchain thinking that we talk about, I think, also melds this notion of the importance of neighbors. So on the internet, everyone's your neighbor. And as you know, sometimes your neighbor is, is worth more like looking after the kids, so to speak, than some other distant party somewhere else or some sort of financial uh, arrangement. And so this notion that we have where we are peers, uh, it could be that helpers at hand literally all the time on the network. You can see some of the uh, blockchain-based data storage protocols trying to replicate that. The point here, though, is if there is the risk, is the reward societal or is it something different? And where, whose responsibility is it? And I do think within the case of the internet and digitization, this notion of product liability, I think actually really needs to be considered. Why? Because you know, moving fast and breaking society is no longer, I think, the operating way we can do business. We have to be very thoughtful now especially given that the stakes are so high and some of these internet platforms are now measured in billions of users. Okay, so you've given me an excellent segue here, uh, Pindar, because I want to talk about central bank digital currencies. You talked earlier about the value of having all these different alternatives and how that may be a more resilient system. I actually love the fact, by the way, that Andreas talks about uh, Bitcoin being a sewer rat and that's what's its appeal, right? That it actually has survived everything being thrown at it and come out alive, right? So to your point about being able to actually think about curing rather than preventing is, is sometimes a way to build anti-fragile systems. So that's Bitcoin. But now we've got, you know, these central bank digital currencies that are going to be, I mean, yes, of course, China, for example, is testing. They will be testing without a doubt. But in a very different way, one can expect essentially these things will be birthed live, put out into the public domain, and then... Isn't that the biggest, riskiest honeypot of them all? Like if we think about Colonial Pipeline, it's tiny compared to the cybersecurity risk that lies in a central bank digital currency. You talked about moving fast and breaking things. Yes, we're talking about society here, right? So what does this tell us about what we should be doing for central bank digital currencies? I know Dante has an opinion on this, but I'm pretty certain that you do too, Binda. So I'm going to go to you first right. and let, let, let Dante chump at the bit for a little bit. Okay. So CBDCs are a live wire. Obviously, there's a lot of interest there, but what I would call open CBDCs or CBDCs with a code basis open for inspection is uh, I don't yet, I have not seen one. 
In other words, this notion that they are secure because it's done by the central bank or what have you, I mean, is it the case that they have the best technologists involved? And notwithstanding that in the United States, you've got great universities like MIT participating, there is no sort of monopoly on smarts, so to speak. You know, Bitcoin, what I was inspired by with, with scaling Bitcoin is just the, the technical chops. So the point here, though, is actually transparency, right? The notion that if you have many of your adversaries also looking at the same open code, that those codes would, or the sort of hidden assumptions would be revealed. If you build a system, let the sewer rats of the world come and attack it, so to speak. And then again, looking at this from a biological and evolutionary approach, you know, see what happens. The notion that you can produce a perfect system of any degree of complexity I think the technical area of the internet has shown that it's really, really hard to do that, in, even in spite of experience. Now, nothing survives the exposure to the marketplace. Nothing survives the exposure to the internet. So when we have these CBDCs on the network with the code base saying, here, here it is, have at it, then I would have more degree of confidence in the quality of thinking around them. Dante, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm very glad the movement to CBDCs remains incredibly abstract because, as I wrote just recently, there are a number of major risks, not least of which, of course, is cyber risk. And the fact that the air gap in an economy and a financial system between the central bank and actors in the system is the point, right? The central banks convey monetary policy through the two tiered banking system. And if you want to create a domestic flight to quality issue with your own currency, launch a CBDC. There's a recent report, I think, even in the pages of, uh, of Coindesk, Michael, that highlights the potential domestic flight to quality in Europe of up to 8% of commercial bank money and deposits would potentially shift to the ECB. But all, all of that aside, I think the void in the world of access at global scale, if money is a public good and access to money is a human right, and we're trying to enshrine it. Uh, in terms of the global poverty alleviation targets of the sustainable development goals, among others, goal number one is eradicate extreme poverty. How are you going to do that if the movement of money is a private activity that's inaccessible or it's a birthright based on which country you're in? So I think this broad goal of global financial inclusion, internet native payments, compliant endpoints for global payments and the movement of value and money captured in the Bitcoin white paper very powerfully. And I think every effort ever since really is trying to address these issues. You cannot do that if you just digitize the central bank's money in a, in a given country. You really need what I call this kind of consortium approach, global networks, open networks, blockchain-based networks. I'm totally agnostic as to which tech stack does it, but I'm completely unapologetic and frankly, uncompromising in the goal of pulling more people into the bottom rung of financial mobility. That's why I joined the Libra project. That's one of my core missions at Circle, whose mission is about uh, raising prosperity on the internet and doing so not with an abstract instrument, but with a trusted dollar digital currency like USDC at the core. You know, While we're waiting, billions of people are in darkness. You want to understand what fuels global risk and piracy on the Horn of Africa? continue having entire continents and regions of the world like the Caribbean and, and Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere redlined because of the fear of one brown person making an errant payment, we were penalizing entire continents. So blockchain and blockchain-based thinking allows us to flip the pyramid of access and trust on its head alone. It's not a panacea, but combined with good public policy, good actors, public-private approaches, there's no good reason in the world 
why billions of people are excluded and on the margins of global payments. So I think that you know, you're know you going to find full agreement here that the goal of all of this really ought to be uh, focusing on how are we getting more democratized access and inclusive access to financial systems, not the financial system, but financial systems. And what can that actually bring in terms of benefit uh, to not just the unbanked and underbanked, but to those who maybe have informal systems that could benefit from increased protection measures, uh, increased a security, for example, where they, they may not currently have. So it isn't necessarily remaking the financial system and its image and just kind of digitizing you know, all of that to a greater extent, decentralizing it-ish. It's really about providing new modes of access. And I think part of it, what's really important about that is the opportunity with, you know, call it a token economy, call it you know, a DAO, call it whatever you want to say, but it comes back to this idea that you can have a more meaningful voice in the governance or Pindar, I can use a different word, <laughs> but of these systems and how these systems actually function and operate and how changes are made. And I think that's really powerful. And it leads me to kind of a corollary question in my mind, which is really around the same concept when it comes to energy grids. So right now, you know, we do have the United States and Texas, but in other parts of the world, and we've seen a lot of issues around how grids function and how they don't function, who has access to what and where and for how long, who has power at what time. And a lot of that is very political decision-making. So President Biden has declared that he wants to create this new state-of-the-art, you know, super secure uh, energy system. And is that actually the opposite direction of what the two of you would maybe want to see if we're creating just more centralization? Is that actually increasing the risk? Intentions aside, could it wind up being counterproductive? What are your thoughts? Yeah, maybe if I could jump in on this one uh, briefly. So I've spent an enormous amount of time thinking about energy security and the energy doesn't live in a vacuum, right? It moves through physical lines and physical infrastructure. However, if there was ever a space that is just a, a sitting duck to geophysical risks, cyber risks, it's the energy matrix, right? We saw it most recently in the United States with the uh, grid failure in Texas due to winter storms. Windmills were to blame, even though some of the coldest countries in the world, like Denmark and others, have windmills that work all, in all weather. But the fundamental flaw was, again, a single point of failure architecture. The same pattern holds true in California, which year after year, the utility system is facing this really, really difficult stark choice. Targeted power outages when it's really hot and really arid to avoid power lines touching the tree line and effectively sparking a man-made fire at, at population scale. We also saw it laid bare in Puerto Rico, which after Hurricane Maria, the island suffered the second longest blackout in human history. The first was in the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan. All of them have the same vulnerability fundamentally at an infrastructure design level, which is the energy matrix is a single point of failure. It's a power grid that is uh, pointing to one source. In California, there was also an interesting sort of development around solar enabling new home starts as of 2020. This is 80,000 new homes a year that would be solar enabled. Now, the premise there would be that with that infrastructure now being distributed, if you opened up opportunities through companies like PowerLedger, for example, of having microgrids that can sell excess energy to the neighbor, you now have an opportunity that is slightly more resilient. You're tapping a much more diversified approach to energy production, distribution, and then potentially reselling that excess energy. But at the core, the vulnerability is just the design architecture, which has many echoes of what we see in our financial system, that is a single source of failure. Honeypot databases in finance, 
and then these single source of failure designs and energy infrastructure. I agree with 100% of that. I would simplify it in, in terms of my thinking. I just add an S to everything, right? So it's not an energy system, it's an energy systems. And in, in Asia, when the grid grows down, it's fine because you bring out your genset at home, the two-stroke one, and you connect it and you just get it back up. You know, the Texas, there, you know, Ford Motor Company had a great sales pitch because when the net went down, they had these new electric cars and they just plugged it into the back of the car. You know, the cavalry is not coming, right? I'm sorry, don't expect it. And I think the current policy level responses, you know, even if you could make the decision and recognize what challenge you're in, may not arrive fast enough. So I think it is an individual responsibility to consider and plan for failure. I see Chaos Monkey. Look at what Chaos Monkey does. Assume Chaos Monkeys are everywhere and constantly have your systems challenged for failure. When they break, which they will, focus on bouncing back. And so if your president decided that you know, with every uh, block, there would be a, a you know, decentralized genset or some other power in a decentralized way, that would help. You won't get the efficiency of centralized systems. But then I go back to this window of viability argument, which is it's a mix. We don't need a monoculture in anything. It is efficient to just grow corn. <laughs> if anything happens to corn, you know, then look at biological systems. You know, the rainforests are robust, unless, of course, they're being cut down because of other economic things. But the interesting point that I have also is the mentality that I think we need to move forward with given the climate risk that Dante mentions, is that we're all refugees. We just don't know it yet, right? I think we all have to recognize that the symptoms that we see with unstable weather and its implications on food productions and all these traditional infrastructures means that we need to think about how can we pop up an infrastructure and, and, and bring it down in a much more flexible way. Why? Because that flexibility, the degrees of freedom will lead to the robustness and the assumption that this thing is going to be there forever actually shouldn't be an assumption. We should assume, in fact, that it's going to go away and more productively say, but for how long? And what am I willing to do? What am I willing to do that? If you look at countries where they have natural disasters, you're supposed to keep two liters of water per person. You're supposed to have you know, playing cards to make sure that your kids don't get bored when, you know, as we wait for things to be restored. I think it's our responsibility to have the resources to restore them. It's not someone else's problem. Uh, and I think that's the mindset we need to move to go to be more productive going forward. If, if I could just very briefly, lest money reimagined is labeled as a very pessimistic program. I actually want to offer something a little optimistic as an entrepreneur. Thank you. The difference between risk management and resilience, resilience and investments in resilience accrue. Three additional feet of levees in New Orleans is three additional feet of resilience to Hurricane Katrina. The key right now, as we saw with COVID-19, the US mobilized the largest non-war uh, capital mobilization as a society, $6 trillion and counting. If more of this type of capital being deployed, whether it's from the private sector or the public sector, is targeted towards resilience, every one of those dollars will accrue over time. Responding to these events without a plan and buying home insurance when your house is on fire is the most costly intervention we have as a society. And so the optimistic point is I think these are increasingly predictable events that we can invest in and targeting investments in resilience has long range value and it accrues. So, uh, so some excellent takeaways here. Resilience as an investment, right? That accrues that we earn from. Dante, you talked about the, the fact that one of the biggest risks we face is in fact stems from poverty. So the idea of financial inclusion, investing in 
systems, again, Pindar's concept, plural systems with an S on it, uh, that are both resilient, but also generate opportunities for people, ends up being an inherent something that protects us against so much of this risk that we face. And Pindar, I think my takeaway as well is that the chaos monkey is there. He's there. He's always there. How do we deal with whatever chaos he brings to us is a message. So look, so much to unpack. Really a fascinating conversation. I knew it would be this. Could have gone on for hours. We say this a lot, but in this case, I really mean it. This was great. Thank you, Pindar Wong. Thank you, Dante Disparate. It was a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dante. Come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Dante Desparte, and Pindar Wong. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited and produced by Michelle Musseau and Adam B. Levine, announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.